This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980CFPL. We have a very special guest in studio to begin London Live today, and that is London Platoon Chief Colin Shule with the London Fire Department and London Fire Services. And Platoon Chief Shule, you are here for a few things, so I, I hope you're ready because I, I have my checklist out. Awesome. Always ready. Uh, bring the questions. Uh, you guys ready are to go. great. You are, you're so willing to answer questions. Well, it's a, like you said, it's a great Friday. Let's get some information out there and keep everyone safe over the weekend. Have you ever considered a career in politics? Because we would love our politicians <laughs> to be as, as open-ended and, and welcoming of questions. Open and transparency. That's what we're all about. That's what we love. Okay. Well, this weekend we are going into a time change, and they can debate whether or not we should change time. I don't know. Maybe maybe one day we won't. There's been a, a more and more conversation about that but as of this weekend we do and it does provide for a great reminder we've heard for years make sure you change the batteries in your smoke alarms but this turns into something more at this time of year with co detectors can you tell us kind of how they've come into the fold Uh, that's exactly right with uh, smoke alarms year after year we're constantly talking about changing back time and changing the batteries in our smoke alarms right this week is a great opportunity is carbon monoxide awareness week and we want everyone to be aware of the silent killer which is november 1st to the 7th but no matter what throughout the year we need to be aware of this uh this issue and make sure that everyone's kept safe with having at least one carbon monoxide alarm in their residence uh and Definitely, we need to have one near any sleeping area in our residence. So if you have a a bedroom in your basement, you'll need one by there. If you have uh, bedrooms on your main floor, so on and so forth. So um, everything's really easy right now because smoke alarms and uh, CO are generally combined. And uh, one-stop shopping, go out to your neighborhood hardware store, um, go to your neighborhood big box store and uh, get yourself some updated ones. There is a limitation to the years of service for these, and we need to be mindful of that because they do their job year after year without us even worrying about them until, you know, the battery goes dead at 3 o'clock in the morning. And then we go, oh, yeah, we should have uh, changed those. So we want to make sure that people are uh, are getting, whether they get up in the morning early on Sunday morning or however it is, they, now they got daylight that they can do it as early in the morning as they can uh, after the uh, time change goes back. Now, you mentioned that they will wear out, and this is something that you don't necessarily even realize. If you have a home that has been built and you look up and your smoke alarms are hired, wired in and they contain CO detectors, you're thinking, "Woo, we're, we are set. Not so much. With regard to when these will wear out or when they will need to be replaced, Am I looking for a sticker somewhere on this? Most of them are providing a sticker that you can write the date on now beside the uh, beside the date that uh, you're putting them up. And that way, we can't remember what we did two weeks from now. So, I mean, to look at 10 years, five to seven years, you need to write that on the side. So the other thing that people uh, aren't aware of is that uh, interconnected uh, or the ones that connect to the electricity uh, have battery backup for when the... Uh, the hydro goes out and we want to make sure that you remember that because it may seem like they're good, but you want to make sure. So that's why we do the every six months, just so that uh, people can do that, but they should be checking them every month and even cleaning them with a vacuum and making sure that they're in good working order. Cause they're only as good as the smoke alarm working Uh smoke alarm up there. won't work if it's not uh, properly maintained. 
all of them do have those test buttons where you get on a chair. We've all been there. You stand on the chair. You reach up. You can touch the button. And then you realize... I only have one hand left to cover my ears, and I don't know about you. I I have long arms, but I, I can't really wrap around the head. Yeah. Do those test buttons work? Is that giving us a legitimate idea of whether or not this thing's in good working order? Absolutely. That's what they're there for. The test buttons are great. Uh, use a, uh, some mechanism that you may not need to use a ladder, whether it's a, a broom or something, to test that. Um, which is awesome. Uh, a lot you don't of like now, me climbing on the chair. Well, I just, I just, if You've anyone, me, if anyone could see the visual that I just seen, no, mm-hmm. you should stay on the ground. I'm um, getting <laughs> worse and worse with my balance as I get older but, too. Uh, so. if, uh, another great one is uh, the higher end smoke and seal alarms uh, uh, have an app. A lot of them have apps now, but they still recommend that you do it manually. But you can see the the app on your phone and be able to see the level of the batteries and all, uh, and and really what uh, condition they're in this is something that we love to do on talk radio remember it's kind of like practice for sports teams i know i equate a lot of things to sports but why do they practice why do they why were the knights practicing the power play this past week they have the number two power play in the ohl but they have to practice it to remember how to do it right. And we need to have these conversations because we had a cooking fire this morning. It wasn't very long ago. We were talking about cooking fires. And we had Jack Burt telling us, carry a spatula around with you if you are cooking. Well, we had another cooking fire. We need to talk about CO detectors. We need to talk about smoke alarms. And in fact, with November 1st, which is today, right through until next week, being carbon monoxide week, we have with us platoon chief Colin Shule from the London Fire Department. So let's go into why it is that CO detectors have become such a part of recommendations from fire services. CO detectors were not something that when we were growing up, We had to have. We didn't even have them. But now we're told we need to. Is this a law now that says we must have a CO detector in our house? Yeah, this was a law that was passed back in uh, 2013 for the tragic incidents that happened with uh, the OPP constable Lori Hawkins and her family uh, that uh, were stricken by carbon monoxide poisoning in uh, 2008. So we don't want this to just go in vain. We want to make sure we get that message out. We don't want this to happen to any other uh, families out there. The The huge thing is our houses, our newer houses are, are sealed tighter now. Um, uh, you know, the, the furnace runs at optimum uh, uh, production of, of heat. And really what they want to do is we want to make sure that we get early detection of any gas-fired, wood-fired uh, appliance, as well as one thing that people may not know is that even if you don't have a uh, gas-fired appliance or a wood-fired appliance in your house, if you have an attached garage that your car could park in, then it's law that you have at least one carbon monoxide in your house. And you think about all these little fobs we run around with right now that help us to start our cars. Great when it's nice and cold <laughs> outside. When it's in the garage and it starts by accident, Who knows? When we're dealing with carbon monoxide, when we're dealing with the gas, you mentioned that it's invisible. Is there any hint that it can be in the house at all? I mean, nature has found this neat way of making bad things smell bad and good things smell good. This stuff, nothing? No, nothing. So when you're running the the barbecue or anything, a heater, that sort of stuff, it's off-gassing carbon monoxide in an enclosed area. It's getting trapped in there. It accumulates, and uh, 
It can uh, definitely make you feel sick, and we want to make sure that uh, people get early early response to that, early detection. We want them to get out and stay out and make sure that uh, they're not doing these things that are uh, are causing this type of uh, of issue because when you can't smell it or taste it, people don't think there's a hazard there. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of how it's being used in our home, you mentioned the furnace. So obviously it's it's there, but usually it's being vented out. How is it being vented out? It's usually vented out through an exhaust system, same as your hot water tank, that sort of stuff, and your chimney. And as long as they're kept in maintained condition, usually get the, this stuff checked every year by a certified uh, uh journeyman to do that when they check your furnace they'll kind of make sure the the lines are okay uh, uh, the maintenance is key to this to make sure it's clean the other thing is when we do get snow i know we had a little bit of snow today but when we do get that large amount of snow you have to make sure your your vents are clear outside uh for drifting and that sort of stuff and the houses in in larger municipalities london um the houses are close together so it drifts down middle piles up and could block that vent and then the co is trapped inside our houses are are sealed tighter Hence why our uh, carbon monoxide alarms would be activated. We had that very thing happen to us. Very small space between our neighbors and our house. And in the winter, we got, what, a snowstorm that dropped three feet. Next thing you know, there was beeping upstairs. And my wife called me and said, I'm going to call the fire department here because this is going off. And sure enough, there wasn't a lot, but they pointed to... Yeah. The actual vents saying, no, look, there's snow there. you got to dig those out. So when you shovel your driveway now, Absolutely. shovel the side of your house. Yep, take a, take a look at the, all the exhausts coming out of your house. So carbon monoxide week is underway. Anything else that we need to know outside sleeping areas? And you said we have to have at least one. Yep. Would you recommend more than one? We always recommend more. Uh, I believe uh, in my house, I believe I have three on two levels. Um, in close proximity to sleeping areas as well as uh, near our uh, gathering areas as well. But the law states one and then uh, by the sleeping areas. But uh, the more the merrier, same as smoke alarms. Uh, uh, We're recommending uh, smoke alarms to be even put inside the bedrooms now. So that's where we need to go. And uh, if it's a new build, you'll notice that there's a smoke CO alarm inside your bedroom now if you're lucky enough to have a newer house that that's uh, the building code. So and it's just there. It's there. They put it right in before you even move in. So uh, so we're, we're moving in the right direction. But, uh, again, people are key to to make sure they're maintained after you're, uh, after these are up. And don't forget, they do expire. Platoon Chief they, Colin Shule with us from London Fire Department. Now... As a, a final note, we did have a cooking fire today. Can you refresh our memories on little tips to make sure that we're nice and now that we've closed our houses safe during the chillier season? Yeah. Well, we're moving into the holiday season uh, soon. And uh, to make it very simple, uh, it's just like distracted driving. You're not texting when you're driving. Really, uh, don't be texting while you're cooking. Uh, don't be distracted. Um, uh, make sure that you're watching that because it only takes seconds uh, to a cooking fire to erupt. And if it does and you can't put it out or or uh, with an extinguisher, I think we're recommending that's only to get you out of outside. So we want you to get out and make sure you stay out. And another thing is, is uh, you were saying about practice makes perfect. So we want to make sure that you're practicing your uh, two ways out and your escape plan, because in the event of emergency, you want to make sure that you know where you're meeting. And uh, again, uh, I was saying earlier that uh, uh, 
you know, our family safety. We're coming in the holidays, holiday season. Doesn't take a holiday. I mean, you have to worry about your your own family safety and uh, have a have a great uh, family gathering. And we just need to be mindful that we have to be safe and have to be mindful of those. Uh, uh, alarms that are there to protect us and our families. Well said. Well, Platoon Chief Shul, thank you so much for being a part of London Live today. Appreciate that. Colin Shul with us from London Fire Department, London Fire Services. We live pretty well here for the most part. Not everybody, but for the most part, for the trick or treaters. For anyone who goes home and sits down on something comfortable, yeah, this this is an okay place to be. There are different spots in the world, and Kathy Mueller knows them very well, knows them very intimately. She is someone who worked as a broadcaster in this area and a journalist in this area and now works with the Red Cross and joins us now to talk about how her life became more about that than anything else. Kathy, great to have you with us. How are things going right now? Uh, For someone who's not working full-time anymore, still as busy as ever. I've got a lot of balls in the air. A lot of it's still connected with the the Red Cross, doing a lot of overseas work with that still. Um, Yeah, just, uh, just plugging along. If you had gone back to when you were, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, or when you're making that decision, 13, 14, 15, trying to decide what it was that you wanted to do in life, was this out there somewhere at that point? Oh, my gosh. If it was, I didn't know it. <laughs> it was, uh, I had my heart set on, uh, well, at the very young age, I wanted to be a teacher because I think every young girl growing up at some point wants to be either a teacher or a nurse. And uh, and then in high school, it kind of evolved into journalism. And we had um, like a career day at school and, and somebody from a local newspaper came in and that kind of sparked an interest in in journalism. And then uh, I just felt pulled toward the world of radio and television news as opposed to um, the, the newspaper side. And that worked out, but no, never on my horizon or anywhere in my thoughts did I ever think that, yes, I want to go and work overseas somewhere in a developing country. Wasn't on my radar. Well, you did a great job as a journalist, but when did the day come when you all of a sudden made the change? Well, it wasn't all of a sudden. Uh, It was a three-year thought process. So I went to South Sudan with Canadian Aid for Southern Sudan. They're a a small local charity here in London. And they they help uh, work in this one particular area of South Sudan. And they go every year and they, they bring Londoners with them. And they do a lot of different programs and projects in this one area of South Sudan. And uh, so I went um, as a reporter with the TV station and came back and told a lot of stories. And, and it was while I was there. And, you know, we've all seen it on TV, all the, the, the ads with uh, the, the hungry children and the crying children and the flies and everything. And it wasn't until I saw in person that people were living without the basics and, you know, were very wealthy in this world and that people and millions of people are still living without access to 
basic things like clean water and education and health care and a solid roof over their heads and nutritional food, it really struck a chord with me. And, uh, and it got the, the thought process going in my head. But, you know, sometimes you're away and you get all inspired and then it kind of fizzles out. So I went back the following January again with Cass to just see, was that feeling still there? And it was. And I had a commitment at the time with the TV station uh, that I wanted to honor. So I, I saw that through. And I had a cat. And my cat, Bart, he was with me for almost 18 years. He was getting up there in age. And I wasn't about to abandon him, nor was I about to put him down just so I could go and pursue this line of work. So I waited until it was his time to go. And then uh, that freed me up to start looking for overseas work. In the meantime, I had already started volunteering at the Canadian Red Cross here in London. And uh, yeah, within six months of looking for work, I got offered a nine-month contract in Indonesia and yeah, took that leap of faith and it would work out. We're talking with Kathy Mueller. This Sunday, actually, Cass has something coming up. Kathy, what is that? Sure. It's their uh, 21st annual South Sudan concert, and it's held at Wesley Knox United Church in Old South. It starts at 7.30 um, Sunday night. I'll be emceeing it, and it, it's really a celebration. There's lots of music and singing. Denise Pelly, who everybody pretty much knows, um, is she's a, a standard at this concert, and, and she'll be one of the highlights. There's, there's high school choirs, there's elementary school choirs, and 100% of any donations uh, will go to CAST programming in South Sudan. So whether it's clean water or microenterprises initiatives, the, there's a, a secondary school being built, there's girls' scholarships, uh, all that sort of, uh, all the money will go towards supporting those kind of projects. Kathy, what is it like to go from, like you say, Living in comfort, we're able to lie down on a mattress, most of us, at the end of the night. If you want to sit down, there's a comfy chair somewhere. We have a whole other set of chairs and a table to eat at. When you're making that transition and going somewhere and staying, not just overnight, but for a period of time, whether it be South Sudan, whether it be Indonesia, what is that like in kind of changing the way that you live? Yeah, I, I basically lived overseas for eight years, and coming back has always been the hardest part. Going isn't, I can adjust. It's coming back and walking into our grocery stores and seeing, what, 10 rows of stockpiled food from, you know, ceiling to floor almost, and... It just, I have a really hard time dealing with that. I have a hard time um, seeing all the food that gets tossed away, you know, at the deli counters because they're not allowed to, to give it out to homeless shelters, for example. Um, so that's one of the hardest adjustments for me is to to come back and see everything that we have here, knowing the kind of conditions that people are living in overseas. Can you describe what those conditions are? Obviously, no grocery stores, but where is food coming from, from someone in South Sudan or someone in Indonesia who doesn't have anything? Right. So it really does depend. Now, Indonesia, of course, it's uh, it's a very much a developing country. It does have 
grocery stores and malls and everything, but it really depends on what part of the country you're in. Same with a lot of the countries in Africa. It really depends on where you are. So one blanket statement cannot do justice to all the different countries. But basically, I'll I'll use Africa as an example. Of course, they're growing crops, but then there are these cyclical disasters. They're, They're going through annual droughts, and then that's going turns into annual flooding and it's just cyclical and repeated so they're often falling behind where and they they just can't cut and can't catch up because of the cyclical nature of these disasters that are happening so in other words if a disaster happens you just go without there just may not be food for a village yeah that that's quite possible um a lot of the times what they're doing is they're they're doing fam- farming for their families so what they're growing they're using them for themselves or they're selling at the local market so if they don't have that crop to be able to sell at the local market it's affecting every aspect of that family household getting water sometimes how difficult can that be for some people finding yeah. clean water and how far away it might be yeah, and, and this is one of the things that the Red Cross does work on is um, supplying clean water, especially after a disaster, because there are communal wells. But as you, you indicated, those communal wells, they are not necessarily in one particular village. So people, they, they have to walk. You know, I've talked to people who have walked four or five kilometers one way to get to a well to get clean water and then they're carrying it back in jerry cans or for example and it's not just the adults who are doing this it's also the kids particularly the girls in a lot of the instances so the girls are being kept out of school to help out with home and they're they're having to walk all this way and they're lifting these jerry cans full of water i tried it it's it's challenging and i had a lot of trouble with it and yet we're talking about people who might be a a a whole lot younger yeah, exactly. Like we're talking, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds, right? Young, young children who are um, having to do these sort of chores. Wow. How much longer do you foresee yourself being involved in things like this? Is this now maybe something that is going to to be around you and with you the rest of your life? Yeah, I, I think it is. As long as um, I'm physically able to continue doing the job, as long as an organization will um, allow me to keep doing it, it's just so very rewarding. And a couple of times I've had the opportunity to, to go back and see people, you know, months later. Usually I see people and they're it, it, they're at their absolute worst, right? They've either they've lost everything because of a disaster. They're very, very sick because of an epidemic, and I that's it. I, I talk to them. I, I they share their story with me, and I don't get to see them again. A couple of times, I have had that opportunity to go back and to see the difference in people's lives, and to see the difference that the Red Cross and other organizations are having on uh, people on the ground. It's just it's incredible. There was one little girl, Katiatu, in Sierra Leone, and she was very, very sick with Ebola. She survived it. She was able to go home. I went back and saw her a couple of months later, and I barely got the car door open, and she came running up to me, this vision, and just wrapped her arms around me in this great big, huge hug. I actually didn't even recognize her because she looked so healthy compared to the last time that I had seen her. But to be able to have that kind of an experience and to know that 
you're having that kind of an impact on somebody's life, nothing beats that. Wow. Well, Kathy, we want to thank you again. The annual cast concert for Sudan comes up at Wesley Knox United Church this Sunday. Starts at 7 o'clock? 7.30. Starts at 7.30, and any donations are welcome. And, Kathy, like you said, 100% of anything that is raised will go to help out. That doesn't happen very often. No, and we should say it is a free concert, so that's why we do, we do hope that people will dip into their pockets and give whatever they can. And I'm not sure if you're aware or not, but Jane Roy, who, of course, is part of Canadian Aid for Southern Sudan, she's now painting, and she's doing this beautiful artwork of animals from Africa, so she'll also have them for sale at the concert. Hey, that's outstanding. Kathy, thank you for the work that you do. Thanks for the time. Thanks very much, Mike. Kathy Mueller on her work with the Red Cross and this weekend's concert in support of aid for South Sudan. November is underway, and it seems that we take all the cobwebs and the skeletons and we put them away, and November kicks off a lot of different things, from Movember to Carbon Monoxide Week to... Diabetes Awareness Month. Andy Rose joins us right now. Andy, how are things? Yeah, they're great. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. Let's talk about Diabetes Awareness Month. Diabetes is something that we do tend to hear a lot about. It's not like we're talking about a rare disorder and you never hear it and you think, I have no idea what that is. Earlier in the show, we learned about the Wim Hof Method. We had no idea what that was. But diabetes, we think we do. How accurate do you think we are when we think we know about diabetes? No, I think there's so much that the public can learn. Honestly, I've I've been a diabetic now for, for three years, and, and before that, I, I didn't know much at all. Of course, you do hear about it a lot, and there's different types, type 1, type 2. And I think, um, yeah, of course, people, general public, are pretty uneducated on it. So, obviously, this is, we're kind of kicking off Diabetes Awareness Month um, today. It's a really exciting month for us. And uh, really the goal of me, me speaking out is, is it comes at a great time in my career where I'm really ready for this. And, um, you know, I'm looking to, to spread as much awareness as possible this month. Now, you are a professional athlete, we should say, and now you are living with diabetes. What type of diabetes do you have? Yeah, so I have type 1 diabetes. Uh, like I said, I was diagnosed Three years ago, completely out of the blue, um, just hadn't been feeling great for the week and, uh, you know, knew something was going on in my body. I thought I had maybe had a virus or something like that. Ended up going to the doctor to get checked out. Uh, my blood sugar was, was through the roof. And, uh, yeah, in, in that moment, my life kind of completely got turned upside down. And, of course, you're, you're wondering in that moment, how is my career going to be affected? You know, I was in the prime of my professional career as a soccer player um and you know it, it's been a, a real determination of mine for the last three years to make sure it doesn't affect my career at all uh, i'm able to completely thrive and continue living my dream with it um and now it's a great time after kind of experiencing it and really understanding the condition uh it's a great time for me to to really try and help others do the same thing Andy Rose joining us on London Live. He's a member of the Vancouver Whitecaps of Major League Soccer and is someone who is originally from Australia, but at 26 was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And there was no other sign, like you weren't 13 years old and had a spell where you think, ah, I don't feel too well. This came on in your mid-20s? It did, yeah. And, I mean, it's something that's, 
that is becoming a little bit more common, unfortunately. And uh, it's a tough diagnosis to hear, of course, those first few days and first few months where I'm trying to learn the disease, learn how my body's going to adapt to it and, and finger pricking, you know, 10 times a day and, and your blood sugar is going up and down and up and down. And, and now I'm really able to manage it so much better. Technology has come so far. And um, now I wear a, uh, a glucose monitor on my arm. It's called a Freestyle Libre. Um, it just helps me really manage my life, keeps my diabetes under control while I'm, you know, juggling a really hectic life as playing soccer at the highest level in MLS. Um, and so there are, you know, there, there's ways to really manage it and, and live a really normal life. But um, people, I think, need to know that, need to understand that, it, you know, if you know someone with diabetes or if you've been newly diagnosed, um, it doesn't, especially athletically, it doesn't mean it's, mean it's the end by any means. We are kicking off Diabetes Awareness Month talking with Andy Rose, who plays in the MLS for the Vancouver Whitecaps. The MLS, of course, a bit of a surprise. Maybe the Toronto takes on Seattle in the MLS Cup. Is anybody else talking about that around the league? No, of course. I mean, look, that's how that's how playoffs go in MLS, and um, especially with the new format in MLS this year, where it's just one game, winner take all, and uh, and you move on. So obviously. Both teams, Toronto and Seattle, have had up and down seasons, and now um, you know the third time they're meeting uh, in MLS Cup in the last few years. So it's it's incredible, and uh, obviously wishing both teams best of luck. When you look at how things have changed with how you practice and train, is anything different that way because of the diabetes diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. It takes an awful lot of of effort, a lot of thought every day goes into, you know, I have to inject myself with insulin six to eight times a day and I'm constantly checking my Freestyle Libre monitor. It's linked up to an app on my phone so I can uh, read my blood sugar all times of the day. So, you know, I'm constantly doing that. And um, of course, you, you need to be in the right sort of range when you're when you're training and then during games with the adrenaline playing in front of 20, 30, sometimes, you know, 40,000 people at, your adrenaline completely spikes, which can mess with your blood sugars. Um, so, yeah, it's it's taken me time to really understand my body and how I adapt in certain situations. Um, but now, like I said, through the use of technology, through support from family and friends, it's something that, uh, you know, I'm really able to manage and continue playing at a high level. Andy Rose of the Vancouver Whitecaps joining us on London Live. Andy, was there ever a time when you asked a doctor, is my career going to end because of this? Yeah, of course. It was the first thing that went through my mind. What does this mean for my career? You know, my livelihood, my my job depends on my body so much. So, um, yeah, of course, that went through my mind first. And, and fortunately, there are other top professional athletes in uh, ice hockey in the NHL and rugby, you know, playing a guy named Henry Slade playing for England in the World Cup final this weekend. Other soccer players, there's another soccer player in MLS, a friend of mine in Jordan Morris playing in Seattle. Um, so there's there's other role models that I was able to lean on and, and kind of see that they were able to do this at the highest level, um, which really gave me the belief that I could as well. And, and I just think uh, as a diabetic community, especially this month comes together, you know, you need to be able to see those people and see that those those dreams can certainly still be achieved. What were the symptoms that kind of told you something was not right? You know, I just remember in the week leading up to I was I was lethargic, I was tired, um, you know, I was having to go to the bathroom a lot and just couldn't really hold in the water. It was just really strange feeling and, and in my game that weekend I was playing in England at the time and um I just 
midway through the second half, I just all of a sudden cramped up, like my calves, my quads, my hamstrings. And I just, I had to come off and, and be substituted. And I just, I just knew I, and at the time I just, you know, like everyone else does, you Google everything, what's going on in my body. And I just kind of figured I had some sort of virus. I needed to go to the doctor and get checked out. And, and sure enough, like I said, the, you know, my blood sugar was, was very high at the time. And um, as soon as I, I was able to get some insulin into my system, I felt much better. And then it was just about adapting and and really understanding this kind of new life that I was leading. We're talking with Andy Rose of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Andy, before we close out, you've had such an interesting career in soccer, playing NCAA, even though you grew up basically in England. You've bounced back and forth a little bit from England to MLS. Just give us an idea of what the experience has been like and and where the MLS is now in comparison to other places you've played in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's the expansion has been incredible. So I spent four years playing in Seattle straight after my NCAA career and then went back and played in Europe for a few years. And now I'm playing for the Vancouver Whitecaps. And just to see um, how far it's come, you know, since I started in the league back in 2012 is just incredible. Obviously, so many star names, bigger franchises, bigger stadiums, bigger fan bases. You see what Atlanta have been able to do and, you know, they're averaging like 70,000 fans a game. It's actually, it's really incredible and um, continue to, to find star names to come to the league. So it's really going in the right direction next year. Nashville and Miami are coming into the league and then a few more after that. So it's an exciting time for the league. It's growing, it's getting better, more competitive. Um, and obviously you can catch the final this, this weekend. Well, Andy, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for telling your story and making the kickoff to Diabetes Awareness Month what it is so that we can talk about this and how it really doesn't slow anybody down. If you can play pro soccer, anybody can do anything. That's all right. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. That's Andy Rose from the Vancouver Whitecaps. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 